Good morning, Linworth. I hope everyone's doing well. Why don't you go ahead and uh, stand up, and we're going to start worshiping together. Lord, oh. 
the chains Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb Every knee will bow before him Amen Transfixed on Jesus. 
promise. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me. Let's sing it one more time. Your promise still stands. just pray that um, you help us to focus on you in this moment. Trust that you move, you're still doing things. Everything that you've did, you've done, Lord, just pray that we would meditate on it and be grateful for you and everything you've done in our lives, the blessings in our lives, God. I pray that we could focus and listen to your word today, this morning, that you'd speak through Nick and just give us receptive hearts to your word, God. In your son's name, amen. All right, kiddos, you guys can go on back. And everybody, if you just want to turn around, greet your neighbors, say hello. If you see somebody you don't know, introduce yourself. church. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning to those of you that are here with us, as well as those of you joining us online. Um, we're excited to be here again as a church family on another Sunday, celebrating all that God is doing throughout the week, leading us up to this gathering of corporate worship. So I'm excited to be here, and I hope you are too. If you're visiting today, welcome. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to meet you. We have a connection uh, station for lack of a better term, I can't think of the right word right now. Connection area, booth, I don't know, whatever you wanna call it, we have that. Uh, and there you'll be able to find information about the church. You can pick up a gift bag in the lobby. Uh, you can find out how to get involved in small groups and a variety of different things like that. I just have a couple quick announcements, but before we get into our announcements, I just wanna say Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you that are fathers, also, to grandfathers and uncles and, and spiritual fathers, to anybody that plays the role of dad, happy Father's Day, because we realize that it can be so much more than what uh, the world may think it is. So happy Father's Day to all of you that play the role of dad. If somebody even just calls you dad, happy Father's Day. So uh, two announcements. Yeah, yeah, clap for dads. That's good. Clapping for dads. Uh, so... This announcement is, it's a family fun night. It's Saturday, June 25th. It's from 6 to 8 p.m. So Cross Crew Families, this is an opportunity for you. 
Uh, mark your calendar. What we're going to do is we're going to gather here at the church for dinner. And after dinner, we're going to have our Lifeline students. And for those of you that don't know, I uh, am the student ministries director here at Linworth. And so Lifeline is our high school and middle school ministry. And our high school uh, students are going to volunteer. They're going to watch the kids play games and give parents a much needed opportunity for uninterrupted conversation as best as we can. Now, I can't, com- I, I can't confidently tell you that all of our students will change diapers, but I can tell you that they'll do their best. So make sure you uh, mark it on the calendar. We'd love to have you. And one last thing about that. If your last name begins with A through L, you need to bring a side dish to share. And families whose last name begins with M through Z bring a dessert. All this information is found on our bulletin as well as in the Bible app. And just a couple things real quick that we have coming up. Uh, Don't forget, we have some ministry opportunities coming up. So a couple things that are still happening around the church are fourth and fifth grade girls Bible study. That's Tuesday at 4 p.m. And our fitness ministry. Uh, It's 530 on Wednesday evenings, and it meets at various parks around town for summer. So you can see all of this information in the bulletin on the Bible app. There's contact information. And if you have any other questions that haven't been answered, you can grab our Connect card and you can just go ahead and write them on the Connect card with your name and a way for us to get back in contact with you. And we will be able to do it. So Pastor uh, Carruthers will come up and continue on in conversations with Jesus. Now I'm a little uh, disappointed here, Alex, because... I thought for sure we were going to get some dad jokes out of you today. I knew when you were doing announcements that there were going to be some dad jokes, so I'll fill in the gap here. Um, you know, air used to be free at the gas station, but now it costs two fifty. You know why? Inflation. Um, let me see what other ones we got here. Uh, you know what's the best thing about Switzerland? I don't know, but their flag's a big plus. Uh, you know why the golfer uh, had brought two pairs of pants? Casey guy, all right, that one's, that's a, yeah, all right. <laughs> all right, we'll stop there before I embarrass myself further. Uh, well, I too want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm uh, so thankful for the role that you play, um, and hopefully you're having a good day so far. I also want to acknowledge and to celebrate that today is Juneteenth, which commemorates Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, reaching the last vestiges of slavery some two and a half years after Lincoln had announced it. And so this too is an important day to remember and to celebrate. Well, again, as Alex just said, uh, we are going to continue on in our series called Conversations with Jesus. And I thought that since it is Father's Day that I would pick a story and pick a conversation that involved a dad talking with the Lord himself. And uh, before we look at the passage, though, I want to ask you a question, and that's this. Have you ever been in a desperate situation where you needed help, but no one either tried to help you, or maybe they tried, but they were unable to do so? Um, For myself, at least, I remember several years ago, actually many years ago at this point, Faith and I were newly married, and at the time we were rocking like a a late 1990s Honda Civic, um, and uh, it was obviously older and had quite a few miles on it, and I I knew that with most cars, that uh, once you got to around 100,000 miles, you were supposed to have the timing belt and the water pump replaced. And when I bought the car, it had uh, just over 100,000. And so I assumed that the previous owner had got that done, uh, which as you'll find out was a terrible assumption to make. Um, But anyway, one day Faith and I were were driving home from somewhere 
And we're in Clintonville, uh, which is where we lived at the time. And we were on one of those uh, side streets that run from Indianola down to High Street. And if you know what I'm talking about, they slope downhill quite a bit. And so we're, we're heading towards High Street. And all of a sudden, our car makes a very terrible sound. And things start smoking and the warning lights start going off like it's Christmas. You know, they're just flashing everywhere. And yet we were so close to our apartment uh, because it was just on the other side of High Street behind the giant eagle, if you know what I'm talking about. And I thought, you know what, I think we can mostly coast the rest of the way home. And so I, I kept driving, which was a, a bad decision to make. And um, we, we get into the parking lot, I park the car, I turn it off. And um, now at this point, I knew that something was majorly wrong. Like I, you know, I'd only been driving for maybe six or seven years at that point. I was in my early twenties, but I knew enough to know that it wasn't something simple like a spark plug or a new battery. Like I, I knew this was gonna be major. And so again, I shut the car off. I, of course, popped the hood, because that's what you do if you're a man. You pop the hood and you look in there like you know what you're doing and you pretend like you're gonna fix it. And um, I think Faith headed into the house. And next thing I know, out of nowhere, this man appears next to me and he starts looking in the engine with me, because I guess that's what men do as well. You see a hood open and you think, you just like naturally wander over to it. And, and so this stranger is standing next to me and he starts asking me a bunch of questions about what had happened. And, and it seemed like for the most part, he knew what he was talking about. And I remember thinking at the time, like, Lord, is this an angel? Like, did you send an angel to help fix my broken car? Well, as we kept talking, it became real clear he was not an angel, but rather a homeless man who uh, was maybe struggling with some addiction issues. But, but either way, he, he did kind of appear out of nowhere and I had never seen him hang out in that area before. And, and uh, so it was very interesting. Um, and so we kept talking and he kept again asking me questions about what happened and how long did I continue to drive after something went wrong. And, and at some point he's like, you know what? I, I hate to tell you, but I think your timing bell broke. And uh, the fact that you kept driving on it probably means you locked up the engine. Well, at that point, I knew that he was probably right. And uh, my heart sank a little bit because again, we're newly married, we're broke college kids. And not only that, but I needed this car to get to and from work. And so I started to panic a little bit and I started looking to him for more answers and more help, but it became obvious uh, and it became uh, obvious real quick that though he may have diagnosed the problem right, he had no ability or power to fix it. Not only was he homeless and therefore he didn't have any tools, but he also didn't have the right skills. Because in the end, my car needed a totally new engine uh, replacement. And, and so again, here I am in this desperate situation with a major problem that I needed help with, but the person standing before me was powerless to help. He was willing to listen to my problem, even he was willing to correctly diagnose it, but in the end, he was unable to fix it. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to meet a dad who's in a similar, although much more serious situation involving his son. And this dad is desperate for help. But the people that he turns to at first are unable to help him. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 14. If you need to borrow one of our chair Bibles here, the passage is found on page 844. And once you find it, go ahead and stand with me as I read today's passage. Again, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, 
and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up and greeted him. And he, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, uh, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit into this time this morning. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know the word and to obey. And so, Lord, we just ask now that you would illuminate the scriptures. We thank you for the the. Uh, the power that they have to change us. And so we pray you give us soft hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Okay, so as far as an outline this morning, we're going to look at three points or three movements through the story. And then after that, I want to share with us four lessons or four takeaways that I think that we learn from the passage. And so the first point or the first movement that I want to look at and talk about in the story is this, a desperate situation. Look again at verse 14. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. All right, let's stop right there and let's just set the scene for a minute and, and figure out some of the context here. So we're told in verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd. And so the first question that I think we need to square away is, is who is the they and where are they coming from? Well, if you look in your Bibles at the section right before this, what you'll find is that Jesus had taken three of his disciples, the the fab three, Peter, James, and John. He had taken them on a little field trip. And for the field trip, they went up on a high mountain. And while they were up there, we're told in the passage that Jesus was transfigured before them. And that as part of that, his clothing became radiant and intensely white, such that no one could bleach them. 
And then we're told that while that is happening, all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up somehow in some sort of form, and they begin to have a conversation with this glorified Jesus. And then after that, it says that the Father speaks from heaven, and he tells them that this is my son, listen to him. And if you dig into the passage, it's kind of a crazy and beautiful and intense story which highlights Jesus' divinity and his majesty. And unfortunately, we don't really have time to get into it this morning, but I just want to mention it so that you understand the context of what's going on here in verse 14. And so the they is referring to Jesus and those three disciples. And so they walk down the mountain after this incredible experience. And, and so they're on their way now to meet the other nine disciples. And when they find them, they discover that the other disciples are in the midst of an argument uh, with the scribes and there's a large crowd around them. And so Jesus here in verse 16 kind of takes charge of the situation. And he says this, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. So again, we see here at this part that Jesus steps up and he takes charge and he's like, hey, what's going on here? What are you arguing about with these religious leaders? And I don't know about you, but it seems to me as I read this that Jesus is primarily asking the question to his own disciples, not to the crowd in general. But before one of the disciples has a chance to answer, this desperate dad jumps in and he's like, teacher, I, I brought my son to you. But because you were not here, I had to bring him to your disciples. And I asked them to deal with this evil spirit, but they were unable to do so. And I just want us to pause for a second and to try to put ourselves in this father's shoes. I mean, just think about how truly difficult and desperate this situation is. You see, in Luke's account of this story, we're told there that this son is his one and only child. And so this little boy would have meant everything to his father. I mean, again, try to put yourself in his place and imagine if this was your own kid, how helpless and how scared you might feel, how overwhelmed and exhausted you would be. And not only that, I, I would imagine that this dad must have felt immense shame, both for the fact that his son has a demon in the first place, but not only that, but also for the way that the demon makes his son behave. I mean, just think you're, you're out in public one day and all of a sudden your kid falls to the ground and he starts foaming at the mouth and grinding his teeth and becoming real rigid and stiff. Again, how embarrassing that would be, how shameful even that would feel. And yet as you look at the story, what we see here is just how desperate this father was and how deep of a desire he had for his son to be set free. I know that maybe for some of us 21st century folk, all this talk about demons and evil spirits feels silly. It feels awkward. It feels a little bit like, why does this have to be in the Bible? Haven't we graduated beyond this way of thinking? And yet I just want to say that for the biblical writers, and even for Jesus himself, 
the presence of evil supernatural beings who impact and inflict human beings in our world is not only possible, but it is a fact of life. And again, I know that maybe for some of us, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's just simply true. In fact, I don't think that you can take the Bible or Jesus seriously without realizing and recognizing this reality. I mean, when you study the Gospels, you find out that Jesus basically did three things over and over again. He healed the sick, he preached the kingdom, and he drove out demons. And again, I know that maybe for us living in the West, it feels silly, even unrealistic. But throughout church history and throughout most of the non-Western world, the presence and the reality of evil spirits has been unquestioned. And not only that, but I think if you and I are just honest for a second with ourselves, all we have to do is look around our world and see the brokenness and the violence and the evil. And in doing so, it becomes real evident that there are these unseen powers at work in our world to destroy and to harm us. And one of the things that you learn about the demonic in the New Testament is that they are able to cause both mental and physical issues in someone. For example, there are times in the Gospels when someone has a physical illness, but the way that Jesus heals them is by casting out a demon. Now that's not always true, and so I wanna be clear about that because not every illness or disease is caused by them. I mean, we do after all live in a broken world where things like viruses and bacteria and accidents happen. But even still, sometimes, according to the Bible, the root cause is demonic and therefore it has to be addressed in that way. And as we see with our story here in Mark 9, that is absolutely the case. And the thing about that that I think is pretty interesting is that Jesus has already given his disciples authority to cast out demons. We see that back in Mark chapter three and in Mark chapter six. And not only has Jesus given them authority to do this work, they've even had uh, multiple uh, times where they've been successful at doing this. And yet here with this case, we find out that they are unable. And so in verse 19, Jesus responds somewhat frustratedly by saying this, "'O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me.'" Now, as you read that, you might wonder, who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to the crowd or to the religious leaders or, or maybe to the Father here? Or, or perhaps he's talking to his disciples. Now, at some level, I think Jesus is referring to all of them, but even with that, I can't help but wonder if it's mostly directed at his own disciples. And the reason I wonder that is because of what Jesus says here. I mean, I think the reason that Jesus is frustrated and the reason that I think he's coming off somewhat annoyed is because he knows that he is about to go to the cross. And he has poured all of this time and energy into training these 12 men. And yet here they are at the end of his earthly life and ministry. And, and what does he find them doing? They're arguing with the religious leaders and they're failing in their mission. Again, he has already given them the authority to deal with the demonic. And they've already seen some success and yet now they find themselves struggling. And again, with that, I just wonder if Jesus is thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I'm, a, I'm about to go to the Father. 
And these 12 goofballs are going to be the ones responsible for carrying on my mission and my message to the world. And yet look at them. They're weak, they're immature, and they are unprepared. And so clearly we find Jesus frustrated. But just because he's frustrated does not override or trump his compassion. And so in the end, in verse 19, he says, bring the boy to me. Which brings us to the next part in our story, and that is a dramatic scene. Look at what happens next in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Bless you. And so Jesus tells the father and the disciples to bring the boy to him. And as the boy begins to walk towards Jesus, it tells us there that the evil spirit looks at him and immediately begins to violently convulse the boy such that he falls to the ground and begins to foam at the mouth. And so what a crazy scene here, right? I mean, earlier the father described to Jesus what happens to his son when the spirit sort of uh, takes over or seizes him. But now Jesus and his disciples are seeing it for themselves. And so this intense scene, this intense reaction here prompts Jesus to ask a question to the father to get more information. And so in verse 21, Jesus looks at the father and he's like, how long has this been happening? How long has this been an issue in your son's life? To which the father responds by saying, this has been happening to him since childhood. One translation says there, this has been happening to him since he was a little boy. Now, I think Jesus asked the question not only so that he could get more information, but I think he's wanting to more than that. He's wanting to minister to the father. And the reason that I say that is because when someone has endured immense suffering, one of the ways, one of the best ways you and I can love them is by letting them tell their story. You see, to listen to someone with caring eyes and careful ears who is talking about their pain and suffering, again, when you and I do that, that is one of the greatest ways that we can love and honor them. That's why counseling is so powerful. Because at the end of the day, what counseling is, is someone who, who, who cares about you, letting you tell your story and listen to you. And you and I can do that with each other. And we see Jesus doing that here with the Father. He mentions how, not only though does the Father tell him how long this has been happening, but, but it even gives him permission to open up and share some more painful details. Because again, what we see here is the dad is like, not only has this been happening from childhood, but actually this spirit has tried to kill and destroy my son by throwing him into the fire and into the water. And so again, Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion and mercy on us and help. Which brings us to the third point in our outline, and that is this, a definitive solution. Look at how Jesus responds here in verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now I don't know about you, but I think for many of us, this is one of the most poignant and powerful sections in all the Bible. 
Again, I think we hear here just how desperate the father is. He's like, Lord, if you can, if you are able, have compassion and help us. And Jesus is like, what do you mean if I can? All things are possible for the one who believes. And then immediately the father responds by saying, Lord, I believe, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus here questions and challenges the man's faith. And then the father cries out and he makes both a declaration of faith and a request for faith. In other words, he's like, Lord, I do believe I have some small faith here, Jesus, but I need some help in filling the gap. I need you, Lord, to make up the difference between the faith that I have and the faith you are asking for. And ironically, I, I think here, the Father's acknowledgement of his own doubt and his deficiency of faith is itself an act of faith. And the reason I say that is that uh, I, th I think in order to, uh, I think when you and I acknowledge our need and our dependency on Jesus, when we do that, I think that is itself an act of faith. It's dependency on Jesus. It's saying, Lord, I can't, but I know that you can, and so help me, Lord. And talking about this passage, uh, Pastor Tim Keller put it like this. He said, through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to, to access the presence of God. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I am riddled with doubts and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That's saving faith, faith in Jesus instead of faith in oneself. So how does Jesus respond to all of this? Well, let's keep going here. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And so we see here a crowd begins to run towards this scene after the boy uh, has this reaction from the spirit. And immediately Jesus uh, moves into action and he rebukes the unclean spirit and he commands it to come out and to never enter him again. And at first the spirit seems to somewhat resist or at the very least it tries one more time to wreak havoc on the boy. And we're told there that it convulses him and shakes him but then finally leaves as the boy cries out. However, though, the problem there is that everyone standing around thinks that the boy is now dead because of how calm and how still he is. Fortunately, though, we're told in verse 27 that Jesus reaches down and he grabs the boy's hand and he lifts him up. And so what we see here is that the boy, he goes from being in chaos and confusion to peace and stillness. The demon has left at the very word and at the very command of Jesus. And once again, this little boy is restored both mentally and physically. Now, after this, like what we saw last week, the disciples need some further training and instruction, right? Like they're, they're definitely confused at this point. So in verse 28, we read this. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
And so in order to not get embarrassed further for their inabilities and their failures, the disciples wait until they are in a house where they have some privacy. And they're like, Jesus, what, what happened? What went wrong? Why, why couldn't we do it? And with that, I, you think that, I, I think here that they were genuinely confused, right? Because you think about it from their perspective. They had already at this point had plenty of experience and success in driving out demons, and yet this time they utterly failed. They were probably even thinking to themselves something like, Jesus, I mean, we did the exact same thing you did. We told the demon to leave, but nothing happened. And so what was the problem? And what we see here is that Jesus replies by saying, this kind cannot uh, be driven out by anything but prayer. Which I don't know if you've ever thought about that verse, but I find that to be very fascinating and informative. First off, Jesus here seems to be indicating that there are different types or different kinds of demons. Or at the very least, he's suggesting that there are ones that are more powerful than others. And really, I, that shouldn't surprise us, given what we know about spiritual beings from the Bible. You see, for many of us, I think we're just r real quick to label uh, something as either an angel or a demon, right? You have good guys, bad guys. But actually, according to the Bible, there are multiple names and functions for the different spiritual beings that exist. For example, when we look at the scriptures, we're told uh, about uh, these, these beings called seraphim. We mostly see them in the book of Isaiah, and what we find out is that they stand in the presence of God and they declare His holiness. We're also told in other places in the Bible about these beings called cherubim, which are, are different from seraphim, both in their appearance and in their function. And then not only that, but we learn in other places like Daniel that there's such a thing as an archangel who is identified as Michael. There's also just regular uh, angels who are responsible for delivering messages, and we see that both in the Old and in the New Testament. Now, on the demonic side of things, we, we know that there is this being that is referred to as the devil or as the, the Satan. There's also this other category or type of demons, which we don't know a lot about, but again, pops up in the book of Daniel. And they're referred to there as one of them's called the Prince of Persia. Another one's called the Prince of Greece. Now, Paul in Ephesians, he, he will talk about uh, the, them as rulers and authorities, cosmic powers and evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now, to be fair with, with all of this, we don't know a ton of information about these different beings. And we probably should be careful not to guess or speculate too much. But again, I, I bring it up to, to, to say that, that the fact that Jesus mentions there being different kinds or types shouldn't surprise us. And with that, it makes sense that some of them would be more powerful than others. And yet, the whole point of the story here is that Jesus is more powerful than any of them. And what he tells his disciples here is not that this kind is impossible for them to deal with, but rather what he tells them is that this kind, in order to deal with them, you need more power. And the way that you receive more power and authority in the Christian life is through prayer. You see, I don't fully understand it, but there's no getting around the fact that prayer empowers us for ministry. And I know that oftentimes when we're praying, it, it doesn't feel like anything is happening or, or that anything is being accomplished, but that is simply not true. Just like staring at an electrical cord plugged into a Tesla, you might think, what's that cord doing? It's just sitting there. How is that doing anything at all? 
Well, just because you can't see inside the battery doesn't mean that a transfer of power is not, uh, is not taking place. And in the same way, when you and I pray, and when we seek the Father, there is a transfer of power which equips us to do ministry and to do battle with the enemy. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6, where he talks about us putting on the armor of God. And, and in that context, he talks about the fact that you and I don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these rulers and, and authorities and cosmic powers. And in that, at the, after he works through that section, he, he exhorts us. He says, we must pray at all times in the spirit with all kinds of prayers and supplications. And that if we do that, that'll be part of what helps us uh, be able to stand and to, to fight against the devil's schemes. You see, when you and I, when we look at the life of Jesus in the gospels, we see him demonstrate this over and over again. When you look at the gospels, you see that Jesus constantly got away to lonely places in order to spend time with his father. And then he would come back and he would re-engage in ministry and he would do incredible things, miraculous things, but then he would retreat again back to those lonely places. And so there's this pattern that we see in Jesus's life over and over again of, of him uh, praying, getting away, and then doing ministry, and then praying and getting away, and then coming back to do ministry. And so if Jesus had to get away and spend time in prayer in order to do ministry, how much more do you and I need to get away and spend time in prayer in order to do effective ministry? I mean, we can do stuff, right? Like we, we can give messages, we can play songs, we can uh, go uh, pray for people, we can do all of the stuff, but sometimes we can do it and it's not effective or we can do it and there's no power there because of not spending time in prayer. You see, I know ministry is complex and certainly there are different seasons and movements of God which happens uh, in his divine sovereignty, right? Like there are just times where God in his grace pours out his spirit and, there, and it's just like things are effective, right? And, and, and often I think sometimes people take too much credit for how effective they were when really it was just God and his grace. But even with that said, I think it's fair to say if you aren't being effective in the Christian life, then the first place you should probably look is to your prayer life. Now I say that not necessarily pointing my finger at you, but pointing it at myself. I mean, this was definitely a convicting passage for me to study this week. Because what we see here is that the disciples are willing. They tried to do ministry and yet in the end they failed and were ineffective. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them they need to pray. And so again, with this last point here, we see that faith and prayer and the authority of Jesus are the definitive solution to deal with this difficult, desperate situation. But to close here, I wanna now just finish by drawing out four lessons or four takeaways that I think we see in this passage. And I'm sure that there are many more than this, but these are the ones that impacted me or stuck out to me this week. And the first lesson that I think we see here in the story is just very simply this, we have a very real spiritual enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy you and your family. Now, I know we talked about this a lot in our Revelation series last year, but I just, I just think it's important to remind you of this again. You see, in John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching and he's talking about the fact that he is the good shepherd. But in that, he talks about how there is a thief and personally, I'm convinced that, that, that he's referring there to Satan and to demons. 
And he says about them that their mission statement is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And when you think of our story here in Mark 9, there is no doubt that the enemy was out to steal, to kill, and to destroy this little boy. And the way that the Spirit tried to do that was through self-harm, right? Like for the average person observing this boy, when they would see him fall into the water or jump into fire, they would think to themselves, this boy is nuts. I mean, this, this little guy just tried to kill and injure himself. And yet we know from the story that that was not the boy that was trying to hurt himself, but rather it was the spirit inside of him. Now, I want to be careful here because I know that suicide and mental illness are complex. And I definitely don't want to insinuate that all mental illness or self-harm is caused by the demonic. But clearly, as we see here in the story, sometimes it is. And so because of that, I just think that you and I need to be reminded, not so that we'll be fearful or scared, but so that we'll be discerning and prepared. That we'll realize that, that, again, there is this enemy, there are these unseen spiritual forces at work in our world and at work in our life to bring about harm. But you and I are not helpless, and so we need to be discerning and prepared. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul also talks about this all throughout his letters. And so again, this is definitely something that we see the scriptures emphasize. And again, I just think for us living in 21st century America, we are quick to forget. And therefore, it's important to be reminded of this on a regular basis. The second lesson that I wanna draw out from the story, and I picked this one particularly because it is Father's Day, is this. Fathers, you have both the responsibility and the privilege to position your kids before Jesus. Now in saying that, I, am, I, I in no way want to diminish the role of mothers. Certainly I believe and I know from experience just how important and how powerful the role of a mother is in the life of a child. However though, it is Father's Day and our story did feature a son and his dad and so because of that, I wanna emphasize this point. You see, I just talked about how we have an enemy who wants to destroy us and our families. And because of that, and because of what the Bible teaches about the, about the family, I think and I am persuaded that dads play a pivotal role in the lives and in the faith of their kids. You see, in our story today, we saw a son that was wrecked by demonic influence. But we also saw a father who was willing to do what it took in order to position his son before Jesus. Earlier, we talked about the fact that Jesus asked the disciples a question. But before they could answer it, this father interrupts in order to tell Jesus about his son. Again, I think there was a desperation. There was a hunger for him to see his son, uh, to, to have his son meet the Lord and to encounter him. And I just think that for those of us who are dads, this is our responsibility and our privilege. I mean, I don't know if you have thought about this much, if you're a father, but you are the only one who can be your kid's dad. Other men may teach them about sports and algebra and a million other things, but God in his divine wisdom and in his divine sovereignty has called you to be their dad. And because of that, you should feel both a sense of joy, 
but you should also feel a sense of weightiness. You see, it's both a wonderful privilege, but it's also a weight and a heavy responsibility to be a father. Earlier in Ephesians 6, before Paul gets into all the spiritual warfare stuff that I just mentioned, he first spent some time talking about the family. And in verse 4 of chapter 6, Paul says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The J.B. Phillips translation, which is an older paraphrase translation, says it this way. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or make it difficult for them to obey the commandment. Bring them up with Christian teaching and Christian discipline. You see, other people like pastors and youth leaders and Sunday school teachers, they may come alongside you and your kids to help support and supplement some of the teaching and instruction. But hear me on this, they do not replace the role that God has called you fathers to. And I think at some level, both parents will be held responsible and accountable before the Lord and how they raise their children. But even with that, I do uh, believe that, that because of this verse and others like it, that dads will be held responsible and accountable in a greater way. And so because of that, dads, I just wanna implore you, I just wanna challenge you to do whatever it takes to position your kids before Jesus. Look, you can't make them follow Jesus. You can't force them to make a decision, but you can certainly help create opportunities for them to encounter him. And so to get real practical here, I think one of the things that, that we can do in order to do this I think the first and foremost thing you and I can and should do is to pray for, but also pray with our kids. You see, I think consistently praying for our kids in our own devotional times is great and is necessary. But I think even better is for us to lay our hands on them and pray with them. And so dads, I just wanna encourage you to, to tuck your kids in at night, particularly, obviously if your kid's like 45, that's weird, but, but if you have little kids like, Maybe it's not weird. Maybe some of you dads should do it. Like, hey, you know, son, I'm coming over. I'm gonna tuck you in. But, but I'm primarily thinking of, of little kids here. Dads, I just wanna encourage you, tuck your kids in at night. And as you do, lay your hands on them and pray for them. I always pray prayers of protection. Like every night I lay my hands on my kids and I ask God to give them good dreams and to protect them from scary ones. I also pray prayers of blessing over them like what we see in number six with the, the Aaron blessing. I also pray for God to heal them when they're sick. I pray for God to comfort them when they're scared or sad. I pray for God to bring them peace when they're anxious and so on. And so dads, just make sure that you are praying for, but also praying with your kids. Obviously another thing that's real practical that I think you and I can and should do as fathers in order to position our kids before the Lord is this, bring them consistently to church. Now I know we all have busy lives and busy schedules, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. Coming to church once a month is probably not gonna cut it. Your kids are being discipled and shaped by the world day in and day out through the technology they consume and through the people that they are around. And if you think coming to church once a, a month for an hour and a half is gonna do much, I think you're kidding yourselves. Our kids are not stupid. They read us like a book and they know what you and I believe and value based on what we prioritize. 
And if we don't prioritize our faith by getting together with other believers consistently, listening to the word of God taught and worshiping with the saints, then again, our kids are gonna realize real quick that those things are just not that important to dad. I think another thing practically that you and I can and should do as fathers, and we see it here in the passage, and that is I think we have to be willing to be vulnerable and transparent with them. You see, when we look at this story, we find out that this dad wasn't afraid to let his son see him be weak and vulnerable about his doubts and fears. However, though, in that, what we see is that he sets an amazing example of what to do with those doubts and fears, and that is to bring them before Jesus. You see, I think sometimes us dads, we struggle to talk with our kids about things we struggle with because we're afraid that it will somehow negatively impact them or that they will somehow lose respect uh, for us. But actually, I think that if we're vulnerable with our kids about our own struggles and about our own doubts, it actually can do the opposite. I think it can be really powerful. For example, at least for our family, I have a kid who has struggled with anxiety on and off throughout the years. And one of the ways that I feel like I've been able to help him the most is by being honest about my own issues with anxiety. And in that, I've had opportunities to talk with him about how the Lord has helped me and how we can trust him. And that even when we're afraid that the Lord is present and that if we just turn to him, he will, will, will comfort us, he will encourage us. Not only that, I've even been vulnerable enough with my kids to ask them to pray for me when, when I'm struggling with something. Or when I'm sick, I'll just grab little Mabel, I'll say, hey, lay hands on me and pray for me to, to, to be well. See, again, when we're vulnerable with our kids, one of the things that it shows them is that you and I need the gospel and we need Jesus just as much as they do. And so again, fathers, I just wanna encourage you I just wanna challenge you to do whatever it takes to position your kids before Jesus. And dads, listen to me, you can do this. You can do this. I know it might feel overwhelming. I know you might feel inadequate, but you can do this because again, God and his divine sovereignty picked you to be their father. And what God has called you to, he will equip you for. Let's go to the next lesson that I wanna draw out from the story and that is this. Don't let the failures and mistakes of others keep you from having faith in Jesus. You see, in our story today, we saw a desperate father try to bring his son to Jesus. But since Jesus was up on the mountain being transfigured, he had to ask the disciples to help instead. And again, as we saw, the disciples failed him. They were unable to help his son. And so when Jesus actually shows up, we see there that the man's faith is shaken a little bit. You see, I don't know about you, but I think the disciples' failure directly impacted the father's faith in Jesus. I think that's why you see him say, Jesus, if you can help us do anything, or if you can do anything, help us. And I know right now, one of the buzzwords in the broader Christian landscape is the term deconstruction. And unfortunately, I think for most people, the reason they are deconstructing their faith is not because there is some better option or better worldview out there that, that makes more sense or, or that seems more true, but rather I think most people are deconstructing their faith for the simple fact that some Christian along the way, either directly or indirectly failed them. 
And therefore, the way they're responding to that is by chucking the whole thing. And yet, I just want to encourage all of us, whether you're in that place or not today, don't let the failures of others keep you from trusting Jesus. I know that, that it can be painful. I know that it can cause you to lose faith in others. But just because some Christian leader or pastor or institution fails you does not mean that Jesus has or that Jesus will. You see, I know that the last two years or really longer than that has exposed a lot of dysfunction in many churches and with many uh, leaders. And that's sad and that needs to be grieved and, and dealt with and it's hard and, and those issues need to be addressed. However, though, our faith does not depend and does not rest in fallen, broken leaders. Our faith rests in King Jesus. And King Jesus has never sinned. He has never lied. He has never broke a promise. He has never committed sexual immorality. He always loves. He always cares. And he is worthy of our faith and our trust. So again, I just want to encourage you, don't let the failures of others keep you from Jesus. Lastly here, though, the final lesson I want to draw out from the story is this. Jesus is the king, and therefore his authority and power are greater than the enemies. See, in our story today, we encountered a dangerous and destructive spirit, one that the disciples were unable to deal with because of their lack of faith and their lack of prayer. And yet, even the most stubborn, stubborn or powerful evil spirit is no match for King Jesus, including the devil himself. Throughout his ministry, we see Jesus cast out demon after demon, and not one of them overpowered him or refused to obey. Each one recognized who he was, and therefore they realized they had to leave. You see, earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 3, the, the religious leaders are, are harassing Jesus. And they're harassing him because he's going around casting out demons, and they have never been able to do that. And so the, to, to try to get back at him, they're like, well, you know what? You, you cast uh, out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? That doesn't even make sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? But then a little bit later on in that same section, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And in saying that, Jesus, what he's getting at, as commentator Mark Strauss points out, is this. It is certainly true that Satan would never destroy his own kingdom by casting out his own demons. But that does not mean that Satan's kingdom is safe and secure. It is under siege by Jesus himself, who is storming Satan's ramparts and taking back Satan's captives through his exorcisms. The parable here envisions a home invasion where the stronger man, Jesus, ties up the strong man, Satan, and seizes his property, the people Jesus is freeing by his exorcisms. You see, throughout his life and ministry, Jesus ransacked Satan's kingdom by setting the captives free. But the death blow to Satan and his kingdom came at the cross. And in the irony of all ironies, Satan inspires Judas and the others to arrest and to crucify Jesus. But in doing so, he brought about his own destruction. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection 
uh, put, a, put again a death blow to Satan and his kingdom. And one of my favorite passages which talks about this is Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus Christ, through his victorious death and triumphant resurrection, he has disarmed and defeated the rulers and authorities that have been set against us. Yes, for a time, right now they are still active. Yes, they still are out to steal, to kill and destroy, but their time is short. You and I know how the story ends. And through Jesus, as believers, our authority and our power now is greater than theirs. And therefore, you and I can overcome. Amen? Amen. Caleb and Hannah, you can go ahead and work your way up here now. To close, we're going to take communion together. If you didn't get a chance to grab it, they're out on some black tables just in the lobby there. And in doing so, I want us now to remember and to celebrate Jesus' triumphant death and all that he accomplished at the cross. You see, when, we, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished a bunch of things. We just read it. He, he, he brought about forgiveness. He brought about our justification. We are now declared righteous. But he also brought about Christus Victor, which is another thing that was in the atonement that you and I get to celebrate. And so this morning, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, I want us to remember that and to celebrate Jesus' victory over our enemies. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this and remembrance of me. And so let's take the bread together now. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Jesus, we thank you that we get to come together as a body of believers and we get to celebrate your victory. We get to celebrate the fact that you are the king. You have no rivals. Lord, we thank you for the power and the authority that has been given to us through you. Jesus, before you ascended, you said all authority and heaven on earth has been given to me. Now go therefore and make disciples. And so Jesus, I just pray for myself and I pray for my friends here that we would walk in the authority and the power that we have through you. And that we would be men and women of prayer. We'd be men and women of faith who believe what you tell us is true. That we would bank our lives on the promises of God. And Lord, specifically now I pray for our fathers in this room. And for those watching online, Lord, would you equip and empower us to be the kinds of dads you've called us to be. Jesus, give us the faith and the courage to engage our kids with the gospel. 
to engage our kids and to position them before you such that they might encounter you and come to know you and love you. So we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, and stay. We're going to worship together. We're doing a new song called Run to the Father. It's just um, I just think it'd be great for us to sing out and just declare our need for God as our Holy Father. Just know that He fills that need that we have for Him. Just, it kind of talks about laying down our burdens and searching after Him with desperation. So. I've carried a burden too long. Running 
I can't 
Who's ever paid my ransom? Oh, but this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Well, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. We hope and trust that you were able to encounter the Lord through uh, the Word and through singing. Um, there'll be members of our prayer team down front here after the service. If you have anything going on in your life that you would like prayer for, please, I know it's Father's Day. I know you probably want to rush out to get lunch, but if the Spirit's been speaking to you, please don't miss this opportunity. Come down and, and let one of us pray for you. Again, happy Father's Day. I think it's a beautiful day out there. Enjoy your families. Um, I know today can be hard for, for some of us here who have lost fathers or who maybe didn't have a great father. But may you be blessed and may you remember as we sing today that, that we have a father that we can run to and who is always there for us. And so lean into that uh, today. And, and really that's true for all of us, whether we had a great dad or not. And so again, have a blessed day. Let me close us now with a final blessing. It's Ephesians chapter 3. It says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.